is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream of Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm your host, Ryan Silverstein, and with me as always... Megan Bojarski. And in this episode, we return one more time to, well, one more time for now, I guess, to a Fantasia-style musical anthology made up around various shorts with the loose theme of like, hey, there's music in all of these, with Melody Time, which was, I keep wanting to say like the release of these further up in the, <laughs> in the episode, so I'll just say this was released May 27th, 1948, so we're well into the post-war era and this is also one that there's not a ton of information for out there we went through all of our usual sources and the vast majority of what we know about this comes from our favorite book that will soon not be helpful anymore the walt disney film archives which has really great information specifically on this film and the package films but really only goes through like the next 10 years so soon we will be on our own when we are approaching some of these Disney movies. Yeah, and I believe it only covers the animated film. So there'll, there'll definitely be some additional research on our part to figure that out. And if, by the way, if you're listening to this and there is a Disney book that you think we should check out as part of our references for the show or just because you think it's interesting and worth our time, please feel free to you know tweet, email us, whatever, with book recommendations. I feel like we both come to this podcast with a place of loving doing the research and reading part of this as almost as much as we enjoy the watching and recording part of this project. I have probably a stack of seven or eight books and a few of them aren't really relevant until we get into like the 90s renaissance, but I'm really enjoying digging into all of these. So similar to Make My Music that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, time is relative when we're podcasting. It's it's all time travel. But Melody Time is, again, sort of a popular take on the Fantasia concept where it's a bunch of different shorts sort of related through music. This one also has a through line, American Folklore, which really only ends up mattering for two of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven segments. They're probably the two, I think they're the two longest ones. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give... I'll give that that read up an event later on there was a Disney American Legends compilation that also added in there was a Paul Bunyan short that was done at one point and then it had a John Henry short that was done in the 2000s and another one that was like relevant to that and that was like repackaged as like a DVD thing so like this through line of Disney doing American folklore as unfortunately we also saw with Song of the South does sort of continue. And I think there's a bunch that we'll be tracing as we, especially as we get closer to the building of Disneyland, you know, Disney's treatment of Americana and taking inspiration from American, I'll say mythology more than history 
for now. One of the things that's kind of fascinating with this movie, the publicity blurb described it as, quote, spun around a core of American legend, the mighty men of our native mythology, which is just kind of a weird description, especially since there's only two that are really about people in general. But this kind of idea that we have this American mythos that isn't just revolving around the founding fathers is something that Disney really wants to play with and really kind of builds into this sense of like nostalgia for perfect happy days of America that may or may not have ever really existed. Yeah, I would say not really existed, but also like we're recording this in the days after Nikki Haley just went viral talking about the good old days. So that may also be on my mind, but it is interesting. And I never really thought about this sort of progression and how much this becomes a focal point for a bunch of Disney projects. I feel like, you know, when you think Disney, you think of Mickey Mouse, you think of princesses, but I feel like one of the other sort of legs of this table that Disney is building based on his own interests and preoccupations is this American folklore. And for those who are familiar with the parks, you can see it in uh, attractions there, like great moments with Mr. Lincoln in Disneyland, the Hall of Presidents, Main Street USA as a concept, you know, Frontierland. There's a lot of historical things and even some of the stories they choose to adapt. You know, like I, I would say Treasure Island loosely fits into the idea of American folklore, even though like I think it's actually British, but it takes place mostly on this side of the world. You know, and I feel like pirates are a very American genre, if we can mm-hmm. call it that. So I, I do think this is a very interesting through line that we will keep checking in on. And I think it's also interesting because I, I often think of Disney as a very futurist person when, when it comes to like Epcot and Tomorrowland and him trying to design whole cities that people would live in. But he is, I feel like, just as backwards looking at least in this era, as he is forwards looking. Focusing in on Disney, both as a man and as a company, it's really important to check in with what was going on. So last we've talked about, there was the strike, there was the war. All of those things kind of changed how Disney operated and changed where the money was coming in. At this point, the money is not really coming in. And so we're starting to see kind of the studio just desperately trying to make enough money to return to its glory days, but a lot of uncertainty, indecision, and kind of weird choices. Their debt to the Bank of America was rising over this time period, not lowering, so that even when they had what would be considered a box office success, it was really not lowering their debt nearly enough. One of the problems here was that Walt was just deeply indecisive about what he wanted to do and where he thought the studio should be going. So the studio had started working on educational films and industrialization films. And then Walt just decided he didn't want to do that anymore. And he said, throw out everything we've made, give the companies back their money, which puts them further in debt. We're doing something different. Walt then became obsessed with Alaska and put out a half-hour release called Seal Island that surprisingly made just about as much money as a full feature, which made him question, should I even be going for this full-length feature film that had seemed to be kind of the goal up until that point? At that time, he was also unsure whether he would try to essentially recapture the glory days of Snow White or just sell the company altogether. We had seen back in the very early days of Walt 
that he had started multiple companies and when things kind of started going downhill, he would either sell them or kind of just drop them and pick up again later when he had the money and inspiration to go further. This was definitely an idea he was considering again. And we'll definitely see that in these next few films where he kind of wavered back and forth between different styles, mediums, and ideas. So with all of that said, Melody Time ends up feeling kind of disjointed with respect to its style and its themes, because the studio was kind of really confused. Similar to its early days, there was a lot of really good experimentation going on. But rather than being kind of a, you know, to quote Encanto, what else can I do kind of vibe, it was really just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And we see some really great shorts in this composition and some that are just kind of there. Maybe not bad, but certainly not quite to the heights that I think uh, Disney was trying to find. Yeah, I think that this is maybe more consistent for me than Make Mine Music, but doesn't have, there's nothing in this that is that I like as much as the parts I love in Make Mine Music. Mm-hmm. Like if that has like some threes and some nines, this has like a bunch of sevens mostly. None of them are, like you said, none of them are bad, but none of them like stand, none of them really wow me either. Mm -hmm. I would probably say there's some fives and some sevens, but even so, we don't really have really the lowest lows of Disney or really any of the highest highs. One thing I will say before we dive into the production is that this is another one of those wonderful movies where we have the 10 second disclaimer at the top. So there's certainly still some of that side of Disney going on, but we'll talk about that in more depth as we go along. Yeah. And I think thankfully that mostly applies to one of the shorts, I think, Mm -hmm. but we'll talk through that, you know, and, and again, like it's interesting, like because of this, Folklore focus. There's a credited American folklore consultant, uh, Carl Kramer, listed in the credits, which is super interesting. And then this is also one where we have to shout out, I think, you know, my favorite Disney artist, and maybe yours as well, uh, Mary Blair, because her fingerprints, I feel like, are over a bunch of the segments in this movie, even if she didn't, wasn't directly the art director, I think, especially uh, Once Upon a Wintertime. I think some of the stuff in the Johnny Appleseed really feel and even some of the stuff in Pecos Bill I think really feels like her style where it's very it's I don't know it's just like this really interesting mix of like I would almost call it geometric inspired where Mm -hmm. like there's very it's like a thin line but it's like very crisp shapes like whether it's round or it's triangular or whatever it is I feel like there's a lot of very like crisp like minimalist almost animation here where like the colors are very flat where like a tree is the same like all the leaves are the same color and there's not a ton of detail in it but I think it's a really effective style choice overall yeah in some of the sources there's some great quotes about essentially the animators who were responsible for the scenes themselves were really struggling to be able to do as much as Mary Blair did oftentimes just with the backgrounds and with the color choices Specifically with emotionality, we see when somebody's sad, literally the entire screen turns blue. And it really works for a lot of these kind of slower scenes to just help us really capture the emotions of the characters. Yeah, I I completely agree. Megan, did you see Across the Spider-Verse yet? I did. 
anytime we're in Gwen Stacy's Spider Woman world, I thought of Mary Blair because of the way that, like, again, like it has these sort of detailed backgrounds, but the color would just wash through everything and be very related to the emotions. Like it would get more red if there was anger and blue if it was sad. It felt like the people who pick that design choice are also fans of Mary Blair. <laughs> I know that Across the Spider-Verse did such a good job bringing those kind of individual stylistic levels to each of the characters and their worlds. I know that there's a lot of discussion of, for instance, the colors of the trans flag in Gwen Stacy's world and how those kind of flash throughout her experience of the world, which is really cool. And I definitely get the vibe that they really were working on kind of bringing that emotional, affective vibe into her entire narrative throughout it. I mean, one of the things I love about animation is the fact that it doesn't have to try to represent the real world, whether whether it comes to physics or colors or or anything like that. And I think it's it's really fun to see such a high profile movie, especially reclaiming some of these things that we're, we're talking about in these 40s and 50s movies like there's a bunch of stuff in here that i think is really abstract and like that's oftentimes where there's a if there's a weak story but the animation is at least interesting so stuff like fantasia there's a couple of shorts in here there's a couple in melody time that are more abstract and impressionistic or things like the pink elephant sequence in dumbo where i'm like this is a thing that really only works in animation because even if you're doing it in quote-unquote live act, live action these days, it's CGI, which is also animation in its own way. It was really cool watching that and then thinking about doing this this podcast, like not even this episode specifically, but just having been talking about all this animation from the 30s and 40s, it was really cool to see that influence sort of directly being called out in a way in a 2023 movie. When we're talking about animation, there's kind of just the idea that there's like 2D animation and 3D animation. And then seeing like the Disney princesses in their own film versus Wreck-It Ralph 2 or seeing all of these different characters from across the Spider-Verse. I, I really loved Hobie just like breaking whatever world he was in because how his animation was done really just shows off how much kind of the, the world itself has all of these artistic qualities that are definitely clear as we're going through these different Disney movies where Pinocchio's world and Dumbo's world are completely different forms of animation. And I think you're right. We do see just how well that can be brought out in something like Into the Spider-Verse, Across the Spider-Verse. And I'm not sure there's too many other films that have done quite that good of a job with that. Yeah, especially not in terms of variety. It's cool to see at least the original Into the Spider-Verse movie, some influence here and there, like with the bad guys that came out last year, the year before. I'm very excited about the new Ninja Turtles movie, which seems very much inspired by that style. And as someone who loves mm -hmm. comic books and animation, like I'm just thrilled mm -hmm. because at some point we'll talk about Pixar in the future. I love Pixar. I think Disney actually also does a pretty good job with 3D animation most of the time, but it's nice when that's not the only style you know it's nice to see like a dreamworks or illumination not just be like well we're also going to do the pixar style because that's what we think people like and really start to branch out and you know not just in the way the characters are rendered but like 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 we've been saying the whole the style of the animation itself and playing with frame rates and colors and all that kind of stuff 
it's all tools in the toolbox and it's all about ultimately telling the story. But I think the way that story gets told with animation is, is always a little extra special to me. But jumping in, into Melody Time specifically, the first short is Once Upon a Winter Time. Uh, the title song is sung by Fran- Francis Langford. I love the style of this one. The bold colors, the, the wintertime feel. You know, I like that it's sort of all in flashback where we open in, in this like Victorian room with a picture of the couple in question. I think it's Jenny and Joe. I think, I think are so. the... Yes, yep, Jenny and Joe. It's a courtship narrative during winter. They go for a sleigh ride. They go ice skating. There's an adorable rabbit couple that is sort of mirroring Joe and Jenny, or at least the male rabbit is mirroring Jenny and Jenny and the female rabbit often have the same reactions to their escapades, I'll say. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'd really say that I I think is an interesting choice is like the stakes get way higher in this (laughs) than I expect them to. Like, this is just a very sweet story. And all of a sudden, like the Jenny and the the girl rabbit are like about to head over a giant waterfall (laughs) on on the ice. And the way that that's resolved, I think, is very funny, where the, the two boys in the story are very ineffectual about it, and it's up to the horses and other animals to actually do the saving. is kind of an interesting and sweet, weird way to gender flip, but, you know, I'm kind of into it. But I really like the style. The song is, is kind of whatever to me. But it, it's funny, before I had even seen Melody Time, I was familiar... This was one of those where on the Christmas Disney sing-along tape clips from this were set to jingle bells and there's clips from a couple other sources i think mixed mixed in so but i never knew where this was from until the first time i watched melody time and i was like oh yeah like i remember like there's you know the scenes of them joe drawing the hearts on the ice with his skates or him being cold and then like warming up with when jenny falls into his lap those clips specifically are like very much burned into my brain from being a very small child and watching that tape over and over every Christmas season. I hadn't seen this one before. I will say, I don't love it. I don't hate it. I just think it's, it's, it's very slow for a while. It's, the song is very kind of gentle and melodic, which is ironic given the eventual stakes. It, it's a little bit sleepy to me until, you know, people almost die I did enjoy that little conflict where the male rabbit is just trying to help out. He's like, no, wait a minute. It says thin ice. I don't want you to get hurt. And yet him trying to like get their attention with the thin ice sign is what causes the problem. So I feel like there's some really good character moments. The short as a whole is more of an aesthetic kind of short than it is a narrative, which just for me ends up being a little bit boring. But it's it's pretty. It's well done. Um, it sounds nice. I do think it's a little bit of an odd choice for the first short, though, because it does go from kind of very slow and sleepy to all of a sudden, okay, we're all going to die. We're falling off a waterfall and frozen ice at the same time. That's just my personal take. I think people who have been listening for a while will know that if it's not super narrative, I tend to get bored. So that's just kind of my uh, perspective on it, usually. Yeah, and, and I will say, like, I mostly appreciate the aesthetic. I like that the story is kind of simple and straightforward. But I agree with you that the character stuff, for like, you know, there are no, there's no dialogue in this short. But I think you understand the character's personalities very well just based on the animation, which I think is mm-hmm. really cool. 
So knowing that you struggle with a- abstract stuff, why don't you tell us about Bumble Boogie? Okay. <laughs> the funny thing is, I actually really enjoyed Bumble Boogie. I-, I also think that I've seen it before, which probably helps. So Bumble Boogie is actually kind of really fun when you look at it in respect to Fantasia. So this is a swing jazz version of Flight of the Bumblebee that is performed by Freddie Martin and his orchestra. It's it's a weird segment. It's got a lot of surrealism going, but there are some reasons for it and some interesting kind of fun facts we can call out. But one of the kind of production stories we have is that they were working on this. They really liked the idea. It's definitely kind of this abstract journey where this bumblebee is being kind of attacked and chased by the music. And according to, you know, the the Disney lore, Milt Call reportedly yelled, what the bloody hell are you making this rubbish for at Walt when he was looking at the raw footage of the segment? I personally actually think that this one's kind of fun. It goes on a little bit long, but it really does kind of play into that idea that Walt originally had for Fantasia of like, making music connect with people like you can definitely hear in the frenzy of music the kind of panic of this bumblebee trying not to get murdered by the music itself i completely agree this one as well as trees that we'll talk about in a little bit are the two that feel like they would if there was like a fantasia 1948 Mm -hmm. these would feel like the two that you would like swap in for rite of spring or something like that to you know, to change up the runtime. So you're seeing your your old favorites for, that you remember from Fantasia and then the new ones, which was like the original concept. Despite it being jazz and not classical, I think this really fits fits that mold. I really like this. I think it's really fun. Play the Bumblebee is obviously a very iconic piece of music for many, many reasons, including like the Green Hornet TV show theme, <laughs> uh, which pops, pops back up in one of the Kill Bill movies. Like... So it's a piece of music that I feel like most people have heard before, uh, too, which also makes it fun. And I think the the Bumblebee is very cute. Again, I really like the abstract nature of this. And I think watching it this time, what I really appreciated was how like the speed of the animation and just thinking about like there's 24 drawings per second and how quickly this music is going, especially when like the notes are like dropping in time with the music. And just thinking about the difference in those drawings that is a lot bigger than it would be on like a slower paced thing. And just like the craft behind it really struck me and and the timing of like the notes falling exactly in time with the music. It just like the technical aspect of this impressed me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's slight but fun otherwise. But like I said, watching it, I was really taken with just the, the synchronization of the whole thing. I think it just does a really good job of that mission of this is exactly, to me, what that music sounds like. It's very much, you know, some of the Fantasia shorts, I kind of got the vibe that, like, and we know practically, like, Walt said, hey, what if we do prehistoric life? And they just made it work. This feels very natural, very basically what the music was telling them to do. But just kind of a fun fact for this setting The surrealism here and in Dumbo and a few other places might make people think of some of these iconic surrealists like Salvatore Dali or Oscar Fischinger. Fun fact, 
both of them worked briefly at Disney, which might have inspired their co-workers to do some of these more kind of abstract projects at this time period. So for instance, Dolly worked on the project Destino in 1945 and 1946, which was not finished and released until 2003, which is just kind of crazy, but shows again Disney going, let me take all of these things from these first like 20 years and bring them back out. And then Fishinger actually worked on part of Fantasia. So he had been working on it. He had done some of the illustration. But the thing that he didn't really like is that Disney is very much a kind of collaborative environment. You know, maybe you create the characters, you create the background. He created his segments and other animators changed it. And he kind of threw a fit and stormed out and said, you know, screw this. I'm working on my own, which I think makes a lot of sense as an artist with a really strong kind of vision and idea it would be really annoying to have other people changing that kind of behind your back or when you go home for the night and we will certainly talk about destino at some point either in the near future or at the very least when we get closer to like fantasia 2000 which i think at one point it was originally worked on to hopefully be included with that and they either couldn't finish it in time or didn't finish it in time so it came out a couple years later but we will certainly talk about dolly and destino at some point in the future in depth the short after that is the legend of johnny appleseed narrated by dennis day featuring a couple songs including the one about thanking the lord and another one about apples both of which make sense given who johnny appleseed was as a person mm-hmm. walt actually met with a relative of john chapman who was the, the real name of johnny appleseed was john chapman walt met with one of his i guess relatives descendants to get details and, and again, like I was sort of alluding to, there's a lot of Christian themes in this short, which w- did drew, draw some critique both at the time and later on about being a little out of place for Disney overall, because we don't really associate Disney with a lot of like strong Christian messaging, like explicitly Christian <laughs> messaging. And so this is sort of the, the exception to that. I did want to take a moment to d- go into History Corner about the real Johnny Appleseed. Just to give a sense on like timeline, he lived a very long life for his time. He was born in 1774 and died in 1845. So there's he lived a long life. And when it talks about him going west, at, at this point in the country's history, west was like as far as Illinois from Pennsylvania. So not like the west west as we think of it, but the west as it was, you know, back then. As to like why he did what he did, there's a lot of you know, this definitely dovetails with the mythological conception of Johnny Appleseed as a guy who dressed poor and wore a sauce pot on his head for a hat. Michael Pollan, the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and a bunch of other food-related books, believes that since Chapman was against uh, grafting of apples, uh, so like taking part of one apple tree and grafting it to a, another tree to sort of make a, a specific tasting variety, his apples were probably not actually edible, were probably used only for for making cider, which is one of the things they mention make it, using apples to make with. But the song really is trying to sell like, look how many things you can do with apples. And in reality, what you could really do with Johnny Appleseed's apples was turn them into booze. <laughs> and so uh, Pollen says, quote, really what Johnny Appleseed was doing and the reason he was welcome in every cabin in Ohio and Indiana was he was bringing the gift of alcohol to the frontier 
he was our American Dionysus, which I think is a wonderful description, especially because of how Christian Johnny Appleseed was and using a Greek god to compare him to, I think is just a very funny touch by Michael Pollan. And then historian Paul Aaron also argues that, you know, we think of Johnny Appleseed as this very sort of charitable figure, just like planting apple seeds from the goodness of his heart and spreading apples across the land to make everything easier, which is certainly how the short portrays him. But Aaron says he was actually a very successful businessman. Quote, he bought many parcels of land on which he planted his seeds and ultimately accumulated about 1,200 acres across three states. He wore pauper's clothing by choice and not out of necessity. So he wasn't just this like Christian hippie that the short depicts him as he was actually sort of a shrewd businessman. And like those apples belonged to him. They were not free for the <laughs> taking, you know, and he would swing by and, and check on them. And, you know, they were more like nurseries than they were even orchards where he would then sell trees and offspring to other people. And he actually got pretty wealthy at one point. There were some other financial hardships and taxes and things that sort of dwindled his wealth soon after his, during his life and soon after he passed. But this is certainly the mythological Johnny Appleseed. I'm sort of mixed on this. I do agree that the Christian theming is a little, a little strong-handed, especially compared to what I usually expect from Disney. But I do think the songs are at least fun and cute. And again, I, I like the animation style. This is very reminiscent of what we'll see in a couple weeks with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It has a very similar sort of and again, it's a, similar, it's a similar enough time period, too, where I think it, it creates this sort of Americana style from Disney that sort of carries over. But overall, I, th I think it's fine. I do enjoy the very end where, like, he has to be talked into accepting death because he's like, I still got more apples to plant. <laughs> that is my favorite part of it. To be fair, I love apples. I am also Christian. I don't feel like the songs themselves are out of place because they do kind of fit his narrative. They get a little preachy, especially at the end. But I, I do just, as a perfectionist and as a workaholic, I've very much had those things where people are like, no, you need to eat. And I'm like, no, I need to write one more page or, oh, you need to go to bed tonight. And I'm like, I haven't studied enough. So I, I just love the perspective of like, you know, dying. And it's like, no, but I have work to do. You don't understand. And they're like, no, but like, now is your time for rest. And I'm like, what's that? I don't believe in rest. I need to keep doing what I do. This is who I am. I also will say that going back to the note that this is about folktale, but this is specifically kind of the American mythology. I do like the fact that it really brings out like, why are the clouds the way they are? The clouds look like that because it's Johnny planting his apple trees in heaven. I think that's really cute. I think it's very in line with traditional definitions of mythology being explanations for why things are the way they are. It's a bit heavy handed, but I also think that that makes sense as we're going into the beginning of the Cold War era and especially with Walt being so anti-communist, there becomes kind of this narrative in America that Christianity will fight the communists. So I definitely can see a little bit of those traces of the early Red Scare and Walt's fervent hatred of communists starting to come out in pushing 
maybe that Christian messaging just a little bit stronger than he normally would. That's a great point that I hadn't thought about. And I think that totally makes sense. Revisiting this, I found the Christian stuff a little bit more surprising because I had kind of forgotten about it, but not as surprising as the second time it happens in this movie. And so maybe it, it coming up twice where it has never come up before, I mm-hmm. think just makes me just react a little bit more strongly to it. But no, it, it's just one of those things that like, I just hadn't really, I always forget or don't expect to have a, like at least one song that you could sing at like a, you know, vacation Bible school <laughs> to pop up in a Disney movie, but like it totally fits. And I don't, I, again, I don't think it's bad or wrong necessarily. It just was, again, it's just sort of unexpected. Mm-hmm. In traditional Disney, at least, and we'll see if this is different in any of these kind of hidden especially live action films, we're very used to, other than Hunchback of Notre Dame, which obviously has a huge presence of the church, but not necessarily a good one. Basically, the only existence of religion comes in when characters get married, where we see priests or we see potentially a Bible. But that's really just because we have to show these characters finally getting together and and all of that. I don't know. I think that as an individual short, I don't really have a problem with the religiosity. I do think it's very jarring in this setting where we go from, you know, a bumblebee being chased by music to, oh, let's have kind of a Christian parable of sorts to a tugboat trying to make its way in the world. And especially as we, you know, go all the way through this film and we get to the Picos or Pecos, I don't actually know how to say it, Bill segment. It's a little out of place in this movie, I would say. But I don't necessarily think it's out of place on its own. I mean, it would certainly be weirder if, like, Little Toot pulled out a Bible at one point. (laughs) But it was just interesting to be like, I have my book. And they, like, I don't remember if they actually say the Bible. Like, it's clearly a Bible, but, like, it's just interesting. And, again, like, I feel like to, to drop that entirely would make it even less tied into not even the the real John Chapman, but just even the Johnny Appleseed folklore itself is pretty heavily Christian in its in its expression. So like it totally makes sense. It's not it's not a true complaint. It's just one of those things where I was like, oh yeah, there's we don't get Jesus mentioned by name, but it's it's pretty close to it, which again it's just different when we're mostly talking about movies where animals are talking to each other and there's medieval princesses and things. Yeah. You know, going right along to the next segment, which is about as different as it could possibly be, we have Little Toot, which is probably my favorite segment in this movie. So the Little Toot segment is based on the 1939 picture book, Little Toot, by Herdy Gramatke. The vocals are provided by the Andrews sisters. So we see this kind of continuation of the Andrews sisters' you know, working with Disney and staying in this kind of like popular music vein. But this is actually the last film that the Andrews sisters take part in. So just for a brief understanding, Little Toot is about a a poor little tugboat that just likes having fun. And he accidentally basically destroys a city. You know, it happens to all of us and basically gets put in jail, which seems I don't know. This this movie seems to go very harsh on its punishments for me. But eventually, in a very similar thing to Pedro the, the Plane from Saludos Amigos segment, he gets caught up in a storm. 
And first he's fearing for his own life, but then he realizes he has this greater mission where Pedro had the mail. We see he, you know, it is his job to rescue this bigger boat. And so he's sending out SOS messages and he's trying to save this boat, which is just this, it's, it's really cute. It's probably the most narratively bound story in this, but we get a lot of the behind the scenes really goes back to the Andrews sisters and how they did this. So for instance, we have a quote from Maxine from the Andrews sisters saying it was quite an experience on the wall at the studio. They had the whole story up in picture form. Two songwriters played the score and Walt Disney explained it to us. It was a new thing for Disney. We sang the narrative and it was just very exciting to work with Disney. He was such a gentleman. So we see kind of the continued building of kind of the mythology of Walt and how the Disney studio worked along with these major figures in music, all kind of pulling together into this really cute narrative that is admittedly very, very similar to that short from Saludos Amigos. I'm not surprised when you say it's your favorite, given that I feel like Pedro was also your favorite. That's probably true. From Saludos Amigos. <laughs> and like, I really want them to be friends. Like, I would love for them to meet <laughs> and just like have a short with the two of them hanging out. Oh my God, Disney. I am pitching you. Disney Junior have a TV show of just Pedro and Little Toot trying to get their jobs done and repeatedly falling into trouble. I feel like you could easily have like a new monster a week kind of style show. This would be great. Royalties can be cashed out to Megan Bojarski, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I, I think it would be great that, you know, they'd learn a little lesson. I'm just imagining what this like kindergarten preschool situation would be like, because it, it, it'd have to be like on the water, but there would also have to be an airfield for Pedro to be able to take off and land from. I think this is a great idea. I think we can supplant the Cars extended universe with Pedro and Little Toot. Yes, because it's all the same vibe of, you know, cars and planes and and boats are all alive. And going back to Pedro, he had the little creepy plane skeleton thing. I, I think it definitely works kind of either within the Cars universe or as like a Cars light kind of situation i think it's very obvious that i i latch onto cute characters and little toot is definitely that i just feel so bad when he's like dragged away by the police boats and he's like but dad i was just trying to help yeah this is a very 1940s father experience (laughs) (laughs) like big toot is very disinterested i feel like in little toot and like barely tolerant of you know his playfulness and his making figure eights in the middle of the traffic lanes and you know i i do like that they they don't say it but because of the statue of liberty at the end it's like oh yeah this is new york harbor like i it's it's cool that it's a real world again similar to pedro it's like a real world place that this is taking place in which to me just adds another layer of like fun to it of like oh yeah this is what the boats are like in new york harbor and like if you were a kid and you live in new york or you visit new york and you were familiar with the shore you would like be really excited if you got to see a tugboat Mm -hmm. pulling a bigger ship through the harbor in new york to be fair maybe that is fitting in line with the theme of this little toot is not i would say a figure of american folklore but maybe they were trying to make him one to make like we have these famous humans. We have these famous cryptids. And New York, what do we have? We have Little Toot. Also, 
Little Toot works very well, but the name Big Toot just is weird to me. Uh, <laughs> I would have rather he just be called Toot. Like mm. there's Toot and Little Toot. But this is me caring way too much about one segment of this, but it it's definitely my favorite because it's it's got the best characters and narrative as far as I'm concerned in this film. I will tell a brief family story about about those names and that may it make may make you feel better or not. But so I am I'm a tall person. I come from a family of tall people. My mom's brother, my uncle Ken, his wife's family, there's also a Kenny in that family. And they're like maybe a couple years apart in age. But because my uncle is six five and Kenny from the other family is like closer to, you know, six foot average height, my uncle is Big Ken, Big Kenny, and then my uh, from my aunt's family is Little Kenny. And even though he is, you know, almost seventy years old at this point, he's still Little Kenny. <laughs> That's fair. So that name might stick. Little Toot might still be Little Toot uh, as of this recording, mm-hmm. even though he is he could just be Toot or Old Toot at this point. You know, that's a good point. I do met a few people who like are still junior when they're you know eighty because you know. I was junior my whole life. It's fine. So yeah, the the names work. Little Toot is really cute. And I I think it would be great to see Little Toot in like a nursing home still splashing people and doing figure eights in his like weird tugboat wheelchair. Anyway, I've, I have all the ideas. I know we're in a writer's strike. I'm not going to break the strike line, but uh, Disney... You know, if you're out there, if you're listening, reach out once the strike is over. I think we can I think we can really make something here. I agree. I look I look forward to the adventures of Lil Toot and Pedro. <laughs> the next segment is again the the other one that feels very much Fantasia like to me, which is Trees, is a recitation of the nineteen thirteen poem Trees by Joyce Kilmer. Our editor Tessa also pointed out to me that this was a poem that she memorized when she was a kid. Oh, cool. So it is like popular enough where like it, it is known outside of this short. That's what I wanted to say. The recitation with music is by Oscar Rasbach, performed by Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, who I believe pop up a few times in sort of Disney music appearances. Uh, like I feel like they have a couple other songs out there. One thing of note about Joyce Kilmer is that I believe from the research that I was doing, I had seen that Joyce Kilmer was actually a veteran and had died during World War I. And was kind of being honored in this post-World War II time as like a true American hero who could do both art and war, if I remember that correctly. And so perhaps that also builds into the kind of building an American mythology that we also have this kind of war veteran who wants to just write great poems about trees. Yeah, I, I really enjoy the poem itself. So the poem is recited by Oscar Rasbach, and the music was by Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, who I, I thought had done some other Disney stuff. They did a like covers album of Disney music, but one of their most other well-known songs was No Such Thing as a Straight Banana, which was a novelty hit back then. I'm sure there's no subtext to that whatsoever, but <laughs> again, this very much feels like Fantasia. It has that sort of level of detail of animation that we saw in Fantasia and it also reminded me a lot of Bambi um, especially when it came to the the backgrounds and the sort of more realistic nature style or even something like the old mill 
that we had talked about way back when. And to preserve the look of the original story sketches, Ken O'Connor, the layout artist, came up with the idea of using frosted cells and rendering the pastel images directly onto them. And before being photographed, each cell was laminated in a clear liqueur to protect the pastel. And so like this gives it a very unique look. It really does look different from anything else we've ever seen. And then at the end, there's a tree high on a hill that turns into a cross, which was an unexpected twist, <laughs> I guess, for me. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely love it. It's it's one of those where every time I see it, I'm ready for it to be boring. But then just looking at the visuals of it, I'm just completely... And again, I think the more I learn about the animation of this era and the overall animation process, the more I appreciate stuff like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't particularly care one way or the other about the poem. It's It's nice. But I do think that this is undoubtedly the best, most beautiful, pretty animation. It just really has some of the best art in this movie. And so I was kind of amazed sitting there going like, okay, yeah, the the poem's fine, but like, wow, this is just really, really gorgeous. To me, it's Little Toot followed by Trees is just kind of the best part of this movie showing off both the story department and these special effects and animation departments that we really see some of the first technical developments that aren't just the hybrid animation. So I think it has some of the best technology since Pinocchio, really, other than kind of the hybrid animation, which does some really cool things. It's definitely kind of the wow factor for me in this movie. Yeah, and it's really cool. That I feel like this speaks to what we talked a little bit at the top of this episode in terms of the experimentation that like, because there was no clear direction into what they were going to do next, there was a lot of this sort of like, well, we'll just kind of figure it out and see what works. And it was really cool that, you know, Ken O'Connor came up with this idea and they tried it and it turned out really great. And, and so it's cool to see innovation, even if it's on a small scale, because this segments, maybe, I don't know, four minutes at the most. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was really cool to see that come through in this short. Returning to that hybrid animation style and to some of our favorite characters from this period, we then have Blame It on the Samba, which is very different from the rest of the things, especially very different from the tree segment. But it is the return of Donald Duck, Jose Carioca, uh, as well as the Araquan. I always mispronounce that, from The Three Caballeros. This would be the last feature film to actually include Donald Duck and Jose Carioca until Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But it's a, it's a really kind of interesting, weird, kind of surrealist moment again. The music is a 1914 polka that I am certain to mispronounce, but Apanhete Cava Quinho by Ernesto Nazareth. The Dinning sisters provide vocals while the organist Ethel Smith appears in a live action role. It's a really, to me at least, impressive work in the vein of combining animation and live action. Whereas some of the earlier combinations, specifically in The Three Caballeros, sometimes felt like, okay, we have a green screen behind them or we have a screen behind them and that's kind of all there is. 
this, the, the live action and the animation really are wrapped in together. And yet again, I marvel at how on earth they could have done this without computer animation. I definitely enjoy this segment. It does feel like it's leftover from the three Caballeros. And sorry to not see Panchito make another an, another appearance, sadly, even though this is Brazilian music, so it makes sense that Jose is there. But I I really like this. I really was impressed, especially, like you said, with the combination of the two. That moment where the, the organ breaks apart mm-hmm. is incredible it's an incredible moment the rest of the short is kind of like as a whole it's fine i enjoy it i like these characters i like the music but you're right the special part of this is the way that the two are done together this looks better to me than even the most impressive parts of song of the south in terms of integrating the two Mm -hmm. you know and it's something we'll see off and on again you know we'll be talking about it next week for sure and then i know again with Mary Poppins, obviously, and and Pete's Dragon, and then Roger Rabbit. But like, I, there's not too many other instances of this in between, and so it it was really nice to see it sort of improved upon and taken to the the next level for this one. The final short and the longest short, it, it's about 22 minutes, is Pecos Bill, Pecos Bill. I'm also not sure which is the correct pronunciation, so I'm just gonna go with whatever feels right when I when I say it. <laughs> This retelling of the stories features Roy Rogers, his horse Trigger, Bob Nolan, and the Sons of the Pioneers, who are a musical group, telling the stories of Pecosville to Bobby Driscoll and Lana Patton, who are stars of this season for us. As they are, were in Song of the South, they'll also be in So Dear to My Heart next week. Lana was also in Fun and Fancy Free. You know, they're sort of in Disney's company of players that he's sort of thinking about building at this time. The first known Pecos Bill stories were published in 1917 by Edward O'Reilly for the Century magazine. They were later collected and reprinted in 1923 in a book called The Saga of Pecos Bill. Uh, O'Reilly claimed they were part of an oral tradition of tales told by cowboys during the settlement of the Southwest, including Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. But American folklorist Richard M. Dorson disputes that, saying that O'Reilly is just the author of Pecos Bill. Which I think is interesting when people are like, I'm writing these, like, they're not, it's like, just take credit for this, like, story you came up with. And so, like, this tells a bunch of vignettes around, you know, again, in that folklore tradition of, like, how the Gulf of Mexico came to be, how the Rio Grande came to be, tornadoes, why, and the the two, the biggest, I guess, main question of the whole thing is why do coyotes howl at the moon? And we find out that Pecos Bill was raised by coyotes, and they howl at the moon because his love, Slewfoot Sue, is in permanent residence on the moon thanks to her extra bouncy bustle that she wore for their attempted wedding and was thrown off his horse, Widowmaker, which I guess would technically be Widowermaker in this mm-hmm. case. And she bounced so high she landed on the moon and was never heard from again. I, I overall like this. I mean, this is where that cultural warning certainly comes into play and it's depicting of indigenous Americans is certainly terrible. However, I will say, I overall like the animation style. I really like the the Slewfoot Sue segments, like the, that half of the story more than the first half. While I like the folklore aspect of, again, explaining these things in the natural world and how, how we got them, watching it in 2023 and being like, oh, it was a white guy who did all of these natural things in a land that was already living, like already had people 
living in it and settled on it for thousands of years before we got here doesn't really work for me mm -hmm. anymore. You know, I think him, it, like, with the tornado and, like, all that stuff is great. Like I said, the other stuff is so-so. I do like the way that the desert looks, actually having been out in that part of the country uh, earlier this year. It was cool to see that translated into this animated style. And obviously, I don't like the explanation for how the painted desert got that way. But I do like the way that it's drawn after the the colors are added to it. It is actually really interesting and 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 nice i really like the slewfoot sue segment she is a very attractive 2d drawing <laughs> and so i think that really sells pecosville's instant reaction of basically you know turning into the the tex avery wolf and like howling with lust at her i think works really well jerry beck uh the an the author of the animated movie guide talks about the um when Bill kisses Sue and his guns rise from his holsters and begin to fire by themselves as a a premature ejaculation joke that basically got past the censors somehow. Either they just didn't pick up on it or they just thought it was funny, I guess. I don't know. But like it's it's very clearly that that's what the subtext is. I, for one, welcome it. I think that, like I said, I think the love story aspect of it is a lot stronger than the first half. And overall, the racist depictions aside, I overall enjoy the segment, but I've been writing about Westerns for a year and a half now, so I'm kind of in the bag for the genre a little bit, and seeing Disney take it on in an animated way is, is a little extra fun for me, maybe because of that. It's a complicated segment for me, because, yeah, so essentially the explanation in this is that the painted Indians were so scared by him shooting at them, I wonder why you would be scared, that the paint flew off of them and that was how it became the painted desert. And that is just bad. How it's drawn is bad, how it's talked about is is bad. I also am not a fan of the like, oh, uh, Slewfoot Sue's, you know, ego that she wanted to have like a big butt gets her literally rocketed to the moon. Makes me makes me a bit uncomfortable. That is totally fair. For me, I feel like it's so over the top that it just becomes kind of ridiculous. But I but I agree with you. She should not be punished for wanting to look good, especially on her wedding day. It it seems a little extreme to me. I will say that to Disney's credit, they didn't make this up. So it's not like the Pinocchio, you know, uh Pleasure Island where they took it from like a place of leisure and made it into basically a brothel. It was in the original stories. Disney doesn't always stick to the original stories, so they probably could have cut some things, but obviously they didn't. I don't know. There's there's definitely some good stuff in this segment, but it just it gets so bad for me that I'm not sure it would be something I would want to watch again. I think that's totally fair. Because it's Disney in a way, I like extra appreciate just how how horny it is yeah. and like the fact that it's also in the same movie with the two most like religiously tinged shorts that we've seen so far just makes it really stand out i think even more like it's this makes this a very strange package to watch all the way through you know especially yeah. if you were like watching with like a very religious like parent or grandparent or something and, and like you know, they're like, oh, this Johnny Appleseed, like, he's a real, he's a real role model. And then it ends on the segment where she's, like, slapping her bustle so it, like, 
wiggles in the mirror and like his guns are going off he's howling like it's just very you know because we had jokes in reluctant dragon and the live action stuff that were very much the guy whose name we can never remember hitting (laughs) on various women at the studio but this feels very much like the like it feels like the animators are let loose a little bit more than usual with putting in like sexual references into this into this particular short and i think that just makes me makes it endearing for me but i agree with you that like the original story is certainly you know problematic at best and there's a lot of there's like i said there's a lot of issues in here but i find the slewfoot stew stuff mostly charming even though i I agree she should find her way back two things for me one is i really thought they were going to explain that her getting bounced to the moon is why there's a man in the moon um, mm. Instead of just like casually, that's what happens. You know, if your horse doesn't like you, you end up on the moon. I couldn't help thinking of like Avatar: The Last Airbender. Like that's rough, buddy. I would lo- I would like to see Pecos and Sokka commiserate about them both having to date <laughs> the moon. I got very similar vibes with this as I got in 1997's Hercules with Pegasus hating Megara. Mm. That it's just like, ah, yes, there's a brave hero and his horse companion. They they have such a close bond that when a woman gets between them, they, they just have to basically get her killed. That's the only thing they can do. There were there were definitely some interesting connections for me, but it it I don't know it it goes a little too far for my personal tastes. Didn't think about Hercules, but I, I like that connection as well, and that sort of being you know, either a callback or, you know, a, a, a trope that I'm sure exists elsewhere too, that they're hearkening back to. And, you know, I think when we get to the nineties movies, connecting them back to some of the stuff that we've seen before will be super interesting. Cause I feel like Disney as a studio, you know, they take their history seriously and, you know, maybe, maybe during the production of Hercules, they had them watch the segment just to get an idea for how they wanted to characterize Pegasus in that movie. I will say one more thing that's kind of weird is I believe I was reading the Queens of Animation from this time period um, and there wasn't much that was pertinent to this film, but it did say, I believe, Retta Scott, I could be wrong on this, I don't have it in front of me, was endlessly drawing the muses during this time period, just repeatedly trying to figure out like a sketch that or a short that could be put together about the muses and their personality So I kind of wonder, you know, we've talked about Fantasia having some inspiration, you know, the horses, the muses. I wonder if the 40s was just like really where Hercules came from just, you know, 50 years later. I'm very curious to find out because there's so much, like I said, there's there's just so much history here. And it is really interesting to see that development because, yeah, like I said, the the Pegasus, Pegasi, Pegasuses in... Fantasia look like young Pegasus in Hercules too. So there, there's yeah, there's I feel like there's a lot of them going back to old designs and taking at least taking inspiration from some of it. Mm-hmm. So talking about the release, it was released in the USA, Argentina, and Brazil in 1948, and then later on in Australia, Mexico, and Uruguay, and then as well as the United Kingdom and Denmark and across Europe. Now that we're fully in. The post-war period, even if it took a little bit later, like Denmark, it didn't come out until 1954. So without 
much confidence in the film's success, Walt decided to take his family on a cruise to Hawaii for three weeks so he wouldn't have to face any backlash in case the movie did not do well. It's also funny because that makes me think of that's what George Lucas did when Star Wars was coming out for release. He and Steven Spielberg went to Hawaii together and that's where Lucas either came up with or sold Spielberg at least on the idea for Indiana Jones. Interesting. So getting out of getting out of California and going to Hawaii so you don't have to you know be obsessed with the first reviews for your big movie. Not a terrible strategy. <laughs> I definitely feel like Disney has a trend of this that like when times at the studio were getting stressful, he just like would jet off to another country or or to another area. I don't know that Hawaii was a state yet at this point. No, I don't I think Hawaii is 49. 59. 59. According to, you know, Professor Google. So yeah, going to another country seems to be Walt's kind of thing to do when he's stressed, which is actually something that we're going to see kind of happening again in our next film, where he kind of flees to Europe for uh, periods of time and takes inspiration from it. So maybe it is, you know, as much a source of inspiration as it is kind of an escape tactic. Yeah, we will definitely have to talk a little bit more about Walt's European adventure when we get there. So Melody Time cost about $2 million. It only earned back about $1.3 million. The box office failure in part is attributed to a polio outbreak. Kept people from wanting to be in close quarters with each other. As we know, pandemic can certainly have that effect or epidemic. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when an epidemic becomes a pandemic. I don't work for the CDC, but... It was bad enough to impact the box office of Melody Time, for sure. Among the critical reactions, it's one of those where, like, I think because of the nature of it being kind of an anthology, it's it's mixed naturally. So, you know, our dear friend Bosley Crowther at the New York Times wrote, quote, although the music lacks distinction, the drawing and color are generally fine, and the humor is typically Disneyan in this take-your-pick Melody Time. A a long way of saying it's kind of a mixed bag, but it's not bad. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Melody Time, quote, is a visual and auditory delight, which means it's good to look at and good to hear. And if Disney could get directly at any of the other senses, there's no doubt he'd please them too. Which just makes me think about rides like Soarin', where you're flying over orange groves and they pump the smell of oranges into the ride. Uh, So they would eventually get the smell, at least. You know, I, I think that's Again, pretty spot on with what my expectations around reviews for this would have been at the time. Yeah, I think that in general, this was kind of just a Disney movie. It wasn't, you know, amazing. It wasn't horribly slandered. It just, you know, it was fine. I I do like the discussion of the other senses because Walt did try to do smell during Fantasia. So to see kind of the discussion of how he continues to get all the senses involved and all of that is is definitely an interesting take on it. Definitely see that the mixed reviews continue or get worse as we head into the film's legacy. For instance, on Rotten Tomatoes, the critical score is a 73%, which is actually pretty good, but the audience score is a 48. So this is definitely one of those situations where we kind of see the critics going, oh, look at the technology. Aren't there cool, like, growth? And the audience kind of going, I don't care. It's a little bit boring. And then, of course, the kind of cultural insensitivities are definitely a factor in that. 
on IMDb, it got a 6.2 out of 10. And we see that, you know, there definitely was a legacy for this film. It did continue on beyond itself, but it wasn't it wasn't one of those kind of big films like those early few where we see it just completely taking over the idea of what Disney is. For instance, Disney uh, went on to release a package film called Musicland, which basically blurred Make Mine Music and Melody Time. So it did have a continuing legacy, but it wasn't necessarily the kind of legacy that Disney was hoping for. And again, you know, as, as we talked about, this comes out of the sort of lack of direction or unsureness of Walt himself. And so, you know, that, that legacy kind of keeps continuing. So it wasn't until 1998 where it was actually finally released on VHS, which was very late in the sort of life cycle of VHS. And it was one of the last of the Disney animated features to get that release. The shorts themselves were featured among a variety of VHS over the years. So Little Toot was on a storybook classic release. Once Upon a Wintertime was in another compilation on VHS. There's an American Heroes tape with Pecos Bill and Paul Bunyan. So like parts of this would show up here and there, but it didn't get a full release until 1998. It is on DVD and Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is exclusive to the Disney Music Club where you can get a copy, but it is also on Disney Plus, unlike Make My Music. Little Toot was adapted into a comic strip form in two issues of Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, which was published in 1948. Capitol Records produced a record with the Little Toot song, and it was the first children's record to hit a million sales on the Billboard charts, according to Billboard president Alan Livingston at the time. This was, of course, subject to censorship, thanks to Pecos Bill's smoking. However, both the... His cigarette is fully intact on Disney+, Plus, which was... Maybe a little surprising. It's it's just interesting what gets censored these days and what doesn't. You know, I think again the Hat the Hatfields and McCoys inspired short is more about domestic violence than gunplay, given how much given that like Pecos Bill shoots the screen directly in this movie. Mm-hmm. And you can watch it on Disney Plus. The racism does not get censored. It does just get that unskippable content warning at the beginning. In 1998, a Chicago Tribune review of the film in honor of the VHS release described it as quote old-fashioned delights and one of the few Disney animated films that preschoolers can watch alone without danger of being traumatized, but also the younger generation might be bored by it as they are attuned to the faster, hipper rhythms of the post-mermaid era, which sort of makes sense. Like, I feel like they're just saying like, yeah, it's not going to mess your kid up the way that Dumbo and Bambi might from this era, but it's, it's mostly harmless. You know, I mean, Common Sense Media does point out all of the you know, all of the the cultural depictions that we're talking about before. And it basically says, like, for diehard Disney fans or animation fans, there's stuff here, but for everybody else, it's probably skippable, which I think is probably fair, you know, on top of the sexism and racism in the Pecos Bill segment. In the parks itself, perhaps oddly, Pecos Bill is the most prominent part of this, especially in Magic Kingdom in Florida. There's a bunch of different references to Pecos Bill in Frontierland. So there's a sign of him outside the Pecos Bill Tall Tale Inn and Cafe, which, which is a restaurant I have eaten at. And there's a bunch of like decorations inside that restaurant that reference the short, including a pair of gloves with the inscription to Billy, all my love, Slewfoot Sue in a glass display case. In the World of Disney store, 
Jose Kuroka from Blame It on the Samba appears on a mural on the ceiling among many other characters. And at the All-Star Movies Hotel, there is a script for Melody Time in a glass case, which is weird, sure. But that's kind of the, the, the very small legacy of this movie, again, mostly in Florida. I guess kind of one of the interesting things to me is that there isn't really a frame device for this. So most of these package films that we've talked about have had at least some description of how we get from one scene to the other. This one doesn't really have that. I remember that one source kind of called it out for its intro, where it goes from showing kind of sheet music to showing, I think, a book to showing a an easel with paint on it, where it seems a bit unclear as to how these things are supposed to be tied together. But other than that, I think for the most part, we've covered it. Like we said before, there are some pretty good individual shorts, but nothing necessarily that kind of rises to some of the greats of some of the earlier films we've talked about. Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, I think Trees is the most interesting segment by far. I do really like Little Toot as well. And like I said, I have mixed mixed feelings about Pecos Bill, but there's parts of that that I, I appreciate at least, even if I don't agree with all of the depictions within there's there's pieces of it that i appreciate for what they are but yeah i think that that about covers it there's like we said there's not a ton of information on this one but at least it is more accessible than make my music so megan do you want to take us out next time on dream with mind and heart we will take a trip into walt disney's hometown memories with so dear to my heart in the meantime you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Dream Mind Heart, and on Instagram at Dream With Mind and Heart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela. <laughs>